Welcome to Crime Spot, your podcast on organized crime. Esther, we're on. Awesome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Crime Spot. Crime Spot, episode one. Exactly. Do you want to tell our listeners a bit about who you are, who I am, and what this podcast is about? Sure. So, my name's Esther, and I'm here with Felix. Hi. And really, we're just two young professionals still at the beginning of our career. And we're both working in the field of organized crime. So we've decided to launch this podcast, which is called Crime Spot, and we'd like to use it as a platform to discuss illicit trafficking, illicit economies, and help us better understand the presence of organized crime, its impact, and its implication for our societies. That's right. Maybe if we start as a small note on our backgrounds, Esther, he and I, we both have working experience in international security organizations. And Esther, you have a degree from um, Science Po in international security. Yeah, absolutely. And you come from a law enforcement background. Correct. So let's get started, shall we? Our first episode, obviously, is going to be linked to COVID-19. So we thought it would be interesting to discuss a phenomenon that is linked to organized crime and also played a role in the outbreak of COVID-19. Exactly. And Esther, this is, of course, the illegal trade in wildlife. Yeah, so pretty much the illegal wildlife trade and wildlife crime more generally have generated so much public interest in recent years, but they've really come to the public attention today. Most of you probably have heard of the poaching of rhinos for their horns or of elephants for the ivory, but essentially the illegal trade in wildlife is what brings those illegally harvested wildlife products such as ivory and rhino horn from the source to the consumer. That's correct. So today we are not looking into ivory and rhino horn that much, but we're rather going to talk about bats and pangolins, which maybe some of you are not so familiar with, but have heard recently in the media. But uh, let's talk more on that later. Yeah, and we're really privileged to welcome our first guest today, who's called Damien. Yeah, Damien is joining us. Damien has worked in the area of wildlife crime before, and he will be a great source of knowledge for today's podcast. So, Esther, shall we get started? Is there anything I'm forgetting? Um, maybe just a quick note for those listeners who wanted to take a break. Um, we, we will mm. be having two parts to our podcast. The first will be on wildlife trade and kind of understanding its link um, to the outbreak of COVID-19. And in a second part, we'll be discussing how to respond to the risks posed by the wildlife trade and to illicit wildlife trafficking in particular. Super, super. Uh, shall we go? Let's go. Let's do it. So, as promised, we are joined by Damien um, for today's episode. Welcome, Damien. Hi, everyone. So, Damien, you and I, we've both worked on the topic of illegal wildlife trade. So, maybe we could try to work out how exactly COVID-19 is linked to this illegal trade together. Yeah, sounds good. So, for starters, Felix, could you just walk us through the facts? Um, you know, what do we actually know about the outbreak of COVID-19? Yeah, absolutely. So, first of all, it's important to understand that COVID-19 as 75% of all emerging infectious diseases, is a zoonotic disease, right? So, so you mean, so sorry, what's a zoonotic disease? So a zoonotic disease or zoonosis is just a disease that is transmissible from animals to humans. So part of the challenge in talking about how exactly the COVID-19 outbreak happened is that most of what we think we know today lacks scientific proof. And this is simply because it's way too early for us to be certain. 
That being said, there's some evidence that we have today and those point towards a wet market in Wuhan, China, where supposedly a bat carried the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The virus then probably jumped and this is where we still have a lot of uncertainty to a vector and after that to a human. And generally, we know that bats are carrier of coronavirus diseases and bats are... <laughs> frankly, simply amazing animals. And one of many of their astonishing features is that they can carry such diseases without infecting themselves. And this is well known. And unfortunately, this is not the first time this has happened. In general, there has been plenty of outbreaks of zoonotic diseases alone in this century. Uh, think about SARS, Ebola, HIV, the bird flu, all are zoonotic diseases. And in the case of SARS, uh, of the SARS outbreak in 2003, the pattern is actually pretty similar to what we have today. Also back then it was a bat carrying the coronavirus and it jumped to humans via civets. So also back then the virus didn't jump straight from bats to humans. It's simply the species barrier between bats and humans seems to be quite high. So even though we're quite positive that this coronavirus was initially carried by a bat, it's unlikely it jumped straight from a bat to human. So I guess this is where the importance of the vector comes into play. Do we actually know what that vector was? Uh, no, we don't. Um, there's no certainty about which animal is the vector until today. We think the pangolin might be the vector. The pangolin is this cute-looking, small, scaly anteater, which is thought after in China for its scales for traditional Chinese medicine and its meat food consumption. And the evidence that we have today point towards the pangolin being the vector. So as of now, um, scientists believe that COVID-19 is a zoonotic disease, meaning it jumped mm -hmm. from a wild animal to a human, right? So in this regard, could we argue that the commercialization of wildlife animals or wildlife products favor the spread of zoonotic diseases? Because I guess the question is, is this commercialization the wildlife trade? And if so, is that commercialization legal? Yeah, um, I think here we need to, to talk a bit about wildlife trade uh, in general. So wildlife trade refers to the sale of non-domesticated animals or plants, usually extracted from the natural environment or raised under controlled conditions. The wildlife trade is really global in essence and involves wildlife populations from all over the world. Demand is also widespread and, and uh, occurs across the five continents. And this goes much beyond the food trophy or pet trade uh, that usually that we usually think of. No, we tend to forget that wildlife is uh, extensively used in medicine, fashion, cosmetics, um, folk and traditional practices, as well as uh, arts and crafts, as uh, anyone has uh, noticed when traveling around the world. No, so there's these very diverse consumption patterns mean that animals are traded. Um, in various shapes and forms, both alive and dead, including for their body parts, such as meat, bones, organs, and all the derived products. There are different ways of procuring wild animals. Uh, one of them is uh, to source them uh, or collect them directly from the wild, but they can also be farmed in what we call captive breeding facilities. The only difference with livestock in this case is that uh, those animals are not considered as domesticated, which means that they uh, still retain uh, genetic properties uh, that are comparable to uh, uh, the individuals that can be found directly in the wild. No? Such is the case, for instance, with crocodiles, uh, which are uh, intensively being farmed and bred throughout the world. Now, 
Uh, finally, I would just like to stress that wildlife trade plays a very important role in many economies by providing a source of income to collectors and uh, farmers all around the world, and also by providing uh, goods for domestic and foreign consumers. Right. I think this is so interesting because from what you say, the wildlife trade is just so diverse and involves many different um, patterns of consumption and it manifests itself in so many different shapes and forms. Um, surely some of this trade, or at least the majority of this trade, must be legal. Oh, well, it's hard to say in terms of proportion, but um, yeah, we can assume that a, a fairly uh, important part of it is legal. And, and this uh, trade is actually regulated by an international convention that is called uh, the Convention uh, on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna, CITES, which uh, essentially regulates the international trade uh, between countries of some 6,000 animal species. And this, um, this is uh, uh, made possible thanks to a system of permits and certificates that seek to ensure that trade uh, and these species does not threaten or put into danger the survival of the species itself. Um, for instance, in 2016, you may have heard that the uh, eight subspecies of pangolin, which is this uh, eight, um, scaly anteater that Felix was talking to us about, um, well, eight subspecies of pangolins were afforded the highest level of protection under CITES, which means that their commercial trade uh, between countries is now totally prohibited. Mm, unfortunately, beyond uh, CITES, there is no common understanding or widely accepted definition of what is legal and what is illegal. This means that um, countries remain uh, basically free uh, to determine in the national legislations what constitutes a legal practice or a legal trade and what constitutes an illegal trade at, at the domestic level. So, um, internationally-wise, the only agreed criteria to segregate between legal and illegal trade is whether the species is in danger of extinction, as uh, I mentioned before. There are no international legally binding standards on health or biosafety for the handling of legal wildlife specimens. And uh, So what you're saying, just so I've, I'm sure to have understood, is that what is legal in one country can be illegal in another. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a, major, a major loophole uh, because the line between legal and illegal is, is, is a moving one and, and each country decides where to put the, where to draw that line. No? Laws vary significantly between countries. For instance, when we're talking about ivory trade, uh, selling or buying ivory may be legal in some countries, although the international trade of ivory is completely banned under CITES uh, and, and has been for decades now. So this is essentially possible because countries remain free to regulate their own domestic market as they see fit. In, in some cases, um, what's illegal may not be the commodity itself, but the way it is procured or its origin. So uh, this is the case, for instance, when, when countries adopt a system of quotas, uh, whereby harvesting wild animals beyond the quota or without a valid permit would be considered illegal. So it doesn't mean that the trade in this species is illegal per se, but it's, you know, uh, overstepping the quota and, and, and trading in excess of it. Complex this, is, this is something we see in fisheries quite often, right? Yeah. That certain species are subject to certain quotas. Exactly. And complex regulations can also make it hard to draw a line between legal and illegal trade. For instance, uh, 
when national laws, in, in this case we could talk about China, authorize the use of a given species for, uh, let's say, medicinal purposes, but not for food or uh, not for cosmetics or fashion. So uh, when, when you're confronted as an, an inspector or a consumer to this, uh, to this animal products on a market or on an online platform, well, it's hard to, it's hard to tell what, what for or why this, uh, this animal was, uh, was collected or sourced in the first place. No? What is sure, and, and I think this is the main takeaway, is that illegally traded wildlife poses a, a much higher threat to society when it comes to traceability, biosafety and the sustainable um, use of natural resources because by definition the illegal trade seeks to evade all kinds of controls and regulations and as a result it rarely offers even the most basic guarantees. So I just wanted to pick up on three main ideas that you you said there. Um, So first it seems that Legality and criminality coexist along the wildlife supply chain. May that be with regards to the actors involved, the methods used to procure the products, or even the transportation of the products themselves, right? And then you're also saying that with organized crime groups responsible for engaging in illegal sourcing of these animals and um, bringing them to markets, it means that due to this blurred line between criminality and legality, we don't really know when we see a market on the um, a product on the market where that product comes from and whether it has respected international um, or domestic legislation. And finally, your third point was that because of this, um, the the illegal trade's main um, problem is that we don't know if it respects any kind of safety or health safety um, standards, right? So... I guess my next question is, is that so if organized crime groups come in as early as the procurement level, does that necessarily cause the entire supply chain, including the markets, to be illegal? Well, not necessarily. It, It might be very well that procurement has been illegal, but the products are being sold in an illegal market. On one hand, there are examples of well organized syndicate like structures that engage in traffic and wildlife um, and often actors along the chain can might not be that organized, but can be loosely connected and independent. So even though we talk about organized crime here, sometimes it's difficult to picture these wildlife gangs as mafia-like, hierarchical organizations, although there, there are some examples of this. And yes, they enter the trafficking, they enter along the entire value chain and as early as in the procurement phase, even before. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because I feel like one of the key questions for so many people when you talk about any kind of criminality, but in this in this case, wildlife, um, illegal wildlife is, you know, how organized, how structured, how rational are these um, criminal groups? So, yeah, this really um, this really depends also on the market and the species, right? And that's, that's another fascinating thing about the illegal trade and wildlife that it's not it's not one coherent phenomenon, but it has really a lot of uh, subpoints depending on which species you talk about. So, for example, collectors of um, of any species might be simple farmers or villagers who occasionally turn to poaching as a complementary source of income, or they can be quite organized poaching gangs. Um, some might not even be full-time criminals or might, in their own perception, don't perceive that they're preaching the law as such. 
And the presence of illegal wildlife products doesn't make the markets themselves illegal. We've talked about that before. You will hear a lot of media noise about the wet markets these days and the, the bad wet markets in China. And sometimes they're pictured as obscure illegal markets. And it's important to remember that in Southeast Asia, wet markets are a major contributor to food security and totally depending on where you are from the world, chances are that you will have a similar concept in your home. So if you're from North America or you're from Europe, you probably know these farmers markets. They're similar markets across Latin America, Central America and Africa. Yeah, I feel like this is a really important point because in in recent weeks, wet markets have just gained so much negative publicity. Um, and, you know, they're often described as being full of live animals, of being slaughtered, of having very rudimentary hygiene conditions. So perhaps it's useful to debunk some of some of this myth. And perhaps you could quickly just dis- um, go over what is a, a wet market. Yeah, totally. So first of all, it's important to understand that, as I said before, these markets are it exist all over the world and come in different shape as in southeast asia as somewhere else in the on the world these markets are extremely important for the economic social and cultural dimensions of the local context a wet market essentially is really just a market where fresh products are being sold these products might be yes fish and meat but these products might also be fruits vegetables so yeah, essentially wet markets do sell anything fresh and perishable and the opposite will be a dry market which sells durable goods. So from that definition, wet markets are not necessarily wildlife markets. Yeah, exactly. That's correct. And that's also important. So in some wet markets sell wet wildlife, some don't. Um, it's, it's hard to gauge what's the, what's the ratio here, but you can assume that the majority doesn't sell wildlife. They might sell animals, but not necessarily wild animals. So the Huanan market, market where COVID-19 is thought to have originated from, had indeed a special section for wild animals. And it also featured um, on-site slaughtering of these animals. So in this case, it had a wildlife market component, but it doesn't, doesn't make it illegal as such. As Damien was saying before, countries are responsible to regulate the national trade in wildlife themselves. So even, even though trading in pangolins internationally is prohibited on ascites, the consumption of these within China is generally legal. Now, China has temporarily banned the consumption of terrestrial wildlife, but a big demand factor, factor here, traditional Chinese medicine, is exempted from that. So pangolins are not only sold after for the meat, but also for the scales, which play an important part in traditional Chinese medicine. So this will continue. So I guess this is where much of the confusion comes from, because from what I understand, the consumption of the sale of pangolins is legal in China, but the supply is illegal. And today that consumption and that sale is illegal, but depending on the purpose, it can become legal. Yeah. Uh, well, not all supply of pangolin is uh, totally illegal. No, uh, You also have uh, legal captive bred pangolins, but um, this has posed a many challenge uh, over the years because pangolins are, are, are very hard to... Uh, to bred in captivity, it takes a, a very long time to uh, to actually obtain uh, offsprings, and uh, they have a very complicated diet. But of course, since they are so much uh, sought after in in Southeast Asia, there is a, a huge incentive to keep sourcing them illegally in the wild and launder 
these uh, illegally obtained pangolins into the legal trade. So um, artificially place them in, in farming of or uh, captive breeding facilities to make them look like uh, they were uh, legally uh, sourced or, or farmed. All over the world we, have, uh, we, we know eight species of pangolins. Four of them are in Africa and four in Asia. And the demand is in, in Asia is um, uh, thought to be so large uh, that uh, traffickers and, and, and traders of wildlife have taken to uh, uh, harvesting African subspecies uh, recently. Uh, so much so that pangolin is now considered as the most trafficked mammal in the world. Okay, thank you so much, Felix and Damien. I think that's all we have time for in part one. But before we move on, I was just hoping to underscore a few key ideas that you guys have really put forward in your in your analysis. So first, it's that COVID-19, like 75% of infectious diseases, is the result of a virus jumping from one species to another. And this is why it's called the zoonotic disease, right? Second, it's that the outbreak of COVID-19 has given wet markets perhaps some unfair publicity, uh, but really just wet markets are markets that sell fresh and perishable goods. Most of them are legal, although it is possible to find some illegal products on sale, and organized crime groups intervene at every stage of the wildlife supply chain, interacting with a multiplicity of actors, most of whom are legal, and utilizing various methods of procurement and transportation. And this interaction, this interface between legal and illegal, blurs the lines between criminality and legality, and truly renders any kind of regulation possible or, at the best, easy, shall we say. So the issue is that because of this, products that are sold or the environments in which they are sold do not necessarily respect health and safety standards and regulations, and this unfortunately favours the outbreak of zoonotic diseases. I think yep. they should shut down those things right away. I mean, it just it, it boggles my mind how when we have so many diseases that emanate out of that unusual human animal interface that we don't just shut it down. I don't know what else has to happen to get us to appreciate that. So welcome back, everyone. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci promoting a ban on wildlife markets in China. And really, generally, we've just heard so much in the media about the risks posed by the wildlife trade in spreading diseases, and we kind of went over those risks um, in part one. But wildlife and markets in particular have been at the heart of the political debate, with many politicians and activists calling for stronger regulation and even bans on wildlife markets. Um, actually, on the 23rd of April, um, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called on China to close its wet markets where illegal wildlife is known to have been sold or to be sold. And his call was very much echoed by many in the international community, including um, the Australian government, which urged the G20 countries to take action on wildlife markets. And we have seen today that wet markets indeed do pose biosecurity, environmental and health risks through the presence of wild animals, which are illegally sourced and laundered into the legal trade. So is the closure of wildlife markets, as demanded by the many leaders, the right way forward, Damien? Mm, I would say that the, um, the places where wildlife is physically traded are uh, of little importance altogether. We should not focus our attention so much on the marketplace, uh, whether it is a wet market, a pet shop, or a traditional medicine um, outlet, 
but mostly on the ways that the trade is organized. Uh, I'm referring here um, to uh, businesses uh, such as uh, zoos, wildlife rescue centers, or warehouses, uh, whether legal or illegal. Actually, these facilities, um, where several species of wildlife are kept, may present similar risks to the ones that we have uh, that we have seen in, in, in wildlife markets tulls, uh, including pet shops actually. And they may become uh, the breeding ground for the next pandemic. One thing, one interesting thing that, that we've seen over the last few years is that part of the wildlife trade has shifted to online platforms where buyers can purchase wildlife products and have them delivered to their to the doorstep by courier services. And, and this uh, this trade is, is, is organized in a very similar way as, uh, you know, Amazon or uh, that kind of services. They operate mainly through warehouses, yeah, farms where animals are stored by sellers who operate those, uh, those platforms. And these physical places can pose significant public health risks, similar to in-person markets, no? Right. So what you're saying is that actually, if you're going to close down wet markets, then you would also need to close down zoos, wildlife rescue centers and or pet stores, because what's dangerous is this interactions between various species. Right. Um, so in that line of thought, what about banning consumptions? Because consumption. So advocates for this kind of ban argue that it goes a long way towards ensuring that wildlife products are traded for only essential non-commercial purposes and in safe, hygienic and legal conditions. Just to make one point clear, I'm not advocating for closing all these uh, wildlife facilities. I'm just saying that they may pose uh, similar threats and similar risks, and that therefore a more stringent regulation is, is needed and desirable if we want to uh, avert such risks in the future. Now, the question around bans is, um, is a complex one. I think uh, whether bans are an appropriate response really depends on what objective we're pursuing, and which kind of lens we use to look at these issues. From a public health perspective, the call for a complete ban on wildlife trade may sound reasonable at first sight. And indeed, there is, um, as, I, as, I, as I said before, there's no zero risk when handling life specimens of wildlife. Even when this is done in the legal way, you're always exposed to new harmful pathogens that may jump from species to species in spite of all the controls. So that's one thing. Then from a crime-centered point of view, uh, complete prohibition is usually not an e effective response. Uh, this is uh, pretty well documented and, and uh, you know, many examples in history are, are, are here to, to demonstrate it. Bans tend to push the trade underground and fuel the, you know, the growth of the illegal market, especially when we're talking about addictive behaviors or uh, consumption patterns that are deeply entrenched in cultural behaviors and, and practices. Um, so so I, yeah. I guess this would then also feed back to eventually become a public health issue, right? If you push this ban, if you push this economy underground, you have less uh, sanitary control. Exactly. Over it. That, that will uh, definitely exacerbate health risks. And uh, at the end of the day, it will probably benefit uh, criminal groups that are sufficiently organized uh, to, to take this trade underground, no? One other point from when, when analyzing this from a crime uh, center's perspective is 
<clears throat> the fact that much of the informal trade, I don't want to call it illegal in this particular case because uh, sometimes there is just no regulation whatsoever on, on the consumption of wildlife in some countries. For instance, when we're talking about the bushmeat trade in, in some parts of Africa, Central Africa, West Africa, it's mostly small scale. It happens at a, at a very local level and uh, it's subsistence driven. People, people actually uh, turn to bushmeat for their for their own uh, dietary needs. Maybe as an explanation, bushmeat is wild meat for consumption for these local communities. Yeah, it may be. It may range from bats to chimpanzees or a pangolin even. No? Mm. Um, so I think this kind of consumption pattern doesn't pose a, a huge uh, criminal issue, no? as long as it is not operated by organized crime. Yeah, so based on what you're saying from both a public health perspective or a crime-centered point of view, implementing a ban would be at best um, debatable, shall we say. Um, But I feel like a lot of these calls for these bans come from maybe conservationist um, point of view. Perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah. Um, Well, from the conservation perspective, the relevance of blanket bans is also highly disputed. Some NGOs out there claim that wildlife trade, whether illegal or illegal, always impacts negatively the populations of wild species, but it has been demonstrated that captive breeding can contribute to preserving species on the brink of extinction and even to bringing them back to sustainable levels. So um, it's definitely not a clear-cut issue. Uh, On the other hand, what is true and well-documented is that illegal wildlife trade is one of the major drivers of biodiversity loss, so we should uh, definitely concentrate our efforts on on, on fighting uh, the illegal trade and not so much on banning uh, wildlife consumption and trade as a whole. In any case, I think uh, bans are only as good as the way they are enforced. Uh, we've seen this time and again in the past, uh, bans being being adopted uh, without proper implementation. So that makes no difference, no? The atco- outcome of a ban depends on, on how much it is internalized by stakeholders and by society as a whole. For instance, in Southeast Asia, uh, when we're talking about consumption patterns that are deeply ingrained in local cultures, you know, this raises uh, specific challenges, to say the least. So it requires strong and sustained political will, uh, significant budgetary resources. Otherwise, there's a fair chance that business will go on uh, just, you know, as usual. Um, Yeah, so I feel like in a nutshell, because you've put forward many arguments, but you're saying that banning the wildlife trade completely is not necessarily the right approach because it's impractical, it can be dangerous, and it kind of overlooks the complexity that is the wildlife trade. So what about limiting, like limited bans adopted by individual countries at a national level? Perhaps these bans could target specific species or specific objectives. Perhaps that could be a bit more objective. And I know that um, in February 2020, the Chinese government actually imposed a temporary ban on the trade and consumption of wildlife animals. So is this a step in the right direction? Like, do you, to what extent will the Chinese government will be able to enforce such a ban? And I guess, to what extent is national legislation perhaps more effective in regulating the wildlife trade? Yeah, uh, so you're right. China indeed adopted a temporary ban on all trade and consumption of, and that's important, terrestrial animals. So aquatic species are excluded from that. 
Uh, the ban also spans uh, over transportation, sales and markets, restaurants and even online platforms. It should be noted, however, that a big driver of wildlife product consumption, which is traditional Chinese medicine, is exempted from these bans. And this sort of, again, creates an environment where species like the pangolin, which is sought after for consumption, but also for tra traditional Chinese medicine, it, it can be simply super tricky to, to figure out whether or not this pangolin, the specific pangolin in front of you, in front of a customs agent or whatsoever, is being transported or sold for the purpose of traditional Chinese medicine or indeed is destined for a market. So this sort of blurs the line of what can cannot be uh, traded. During the SARS epidemic in 2003, China also enacted a, a ban on wildlife trade, but the ban was lifted soon after the epidemic was over, allowing the trade to continue as before, including even the breeding of civet cats, from which you might remember the virus had been uh, uh, transmitted from to humans. This time, Chinese authorities are considering making a ban permanent in the coming month which means it could be enshrined in the country's wildlife legislation. Um, the current debate in China is not about whether or not there should be such a ban, but what shape a ban should take. Businesses that breed wildlife species, obviously in a special captive breeding farms, are pushing for their species to be excluded from such a ban. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is, again, one of these key questions in the debate is that given the biosecurity risks, the environmental risks that, you know, we've talked about at length now, you would feel there would be a lot more public support for these kind of bans. But the legal trade in wildlife does support millions of people. In China in particular, the growth of the wildlife trade has been linked to poverty alleviation. So how important is the wildlife trade in terms of sustaining livelihoods? Like why do communities matter and why does the economic i guess um perspective of it all matter when it comes to addressing the illegal wildlife trade yeah this is not a black and white issue uh, we're talking about millions of uh, law-abiding citizens whose livelihoods um, depend on the wildlife farming industry in china for instance uh, the wildlife economy has been very strongly encouraged by chinese authorities as part of their poverty alleviation strategy since the 70s and today, well, it is estimated that this industry employs around 14 million people, including 6.3 million just for the farming uh, industry. Breeding facilities are widely spread across the territory and, and can also be found in neighboring countries such as Vietnam. Uh, and, and, well, they provide jobs and livelihoods to thousands of people there as well, who supply their local markets as well as the Chinese one. So for many of these people, the new ban on wildlife consumption will change everything, basically. In February alone, China closed 20,000 captive breeding farms, and, and many of these producers and farmers worry that, uh, you know, if they're not going to be assisted in finding new sources of income, they're going to have a, a hard time. And, and actually, uh, many worry that uh, they could be pushed into the black market. Yeah, I mean, who could blame them? And the uncertainty of it all doesn't help um, their situation. Those figures are truly astonishing when you say that 14 million people are believed to be employed in this industry. And it really, you know, it, it becomes inevitable to, to, to see that, you know, blanket bans on wildlife products have truly real and significant implications for millions of people. And 
implementing them does cut off an important and reliable source of income. But there is a risk that actors within the wildlife trade may turn to illegal activities as a result of these kind of bans. So has there been a a similar precedent of a ban pushing the trade underground? The recent ban on ivory in China is probably the best example. Um, Since the 1st of January 2018, it's no longer possible to sell and buy ivory in China. In a a couple of months, the authorities uh, closed down uh, 170 ivory carving factories and retail outlets across the country. And as a result of of this, we believe that uh, Chinese sales of ivory have gone down, uh, as well as wholesale prices. And in the meantime, in Africa, we've seen that the population of elephants have been slowly recovering. Poaching incidents have decreased as well, and prices paid to local poachers have been seen to um, to decline sharply. But it's hard to say whether Chinese demand itself for ivory has uh, died out or, or um, whether it is simply shifting to other markets. A recent WWF study found that part of the ivory trade was displaced to neighboring countries, including uh, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, where ivory can still be found and purchased by wealthy Chinese tourists that uh, tend try to evade the regulation in, in, in China. And we also have evidence that suggests that ivory trafficking groups, as a result of the ban, have uh, uh, shifted to other profitable commodities, like pangolin scales. So all in all, we're probably not seeing uh, the wildlife trade as a whole um, uh, declining, but you know, criminal groups are reorganizing, adjusting to the new circumstances, and and finding new ways of doing business. That that example is extremely interesting because it it does show that a ban on one single wildlife product doesn't only have an impact on the supply and the consumption of that one product, but actually has an impact on the wildlife trade as a whole, diversifying, you know sourcing, um, transiting, and destination countries. I just wanted to flip around our angle of analysis here because so we've gone through the role of the illegal wildlife trade in prompting the outbreak of the of zoonotic diseases. Um, we've gone through what kind of regulations we could implement as a result to that. But what about if we look at the role of COVID-19 today and the social regulations um, that have been implemented travel and especially border restrictions that have been implemented, how are they going to impact the wildlife trade? Should we expect a decrease in supply over the next fun, uh, over the next months? So I think that Felix, you've have looked into this issue. Uh, yes, correct, Esther. Um, of course, little is still known. It's a bit early to give any uh, indications for trends, but what we can do is we go along the global value chain of the illegal wildlife trade and have a look at uh, what we can see already, what effects um, are taking place and what other effects are likely to happen. So, of course, illegal wildlife trade starts with poaching. And here, a major concern is that poaching gangs will actually take advantage of the closed national parks now. And the overall diversion of law enforcement resources will obviously because most states will, these days will use their law enforcement resources to make sure the COVID-19 outbreak is not going to get more severe in their countries. So there is this fear that poachers will take advantage of this. And 
On another side, there's also the fear that local communities who during normal times depend on these natural resources for their livelihood, for example, by doing ecotourism, will now have no income and might uh, fall back to being engaged in poaching. And if you, if you move on on the, on the value chain after poaching, we come to the trafficking or transportation, t- transportation stage. And obviously this uh, was ma- majorly affected by COVID-19 and especially the measurements that different states take to protect their countries. Traffic in wildlife, we can see that it still continues, but the scale is simply much smaller than before. Although we don't know if this will be a temporary effect or if this, if this will be more permanent. What we do see already is that the impact of the modus of transportation changes. This is due to the fact that air travel and the increased security measures on airports, all this makes air travel much less attractive for uh, poaching gangs and trafficking groups. So we already saw, and there have been already some seizures in, seizures in March in China that um, gangs were trying to cross land borders with illegal wildlife products. And of course, another way is also to use uh, the sea route. If trafficking gangs do not try to breach through borders and try to deliver the product, another way is that they do stockpiling. And indeed, we have seen a trend of ivory stockpiling, which already started before COVID-19. But what we see now is that this trend to do stockpiling also started with pangolin scales, something that we didn't see before. And finally, the last stage of this value chain, obviously, would be the consumption. Also, here we see some new trends emerging. One example is that in China and Laos, there have been reports that... uh, sellers start marketing rhino horn powder as a potential cure for COVID-19. For wildlife markets outside of China, which mainly depend on Chinese tourists actually, obviously this will have a sharp decline. They will see a sharp decline in their customers. And here an interesting question is whether these shops will have the capacities to move the operations online. But again, this is only a potential outcome and we can't say for sure at this point. Thanks for that, Felix. I mean, for sure, governments may have to look into including the effects of COVID-19 restrictions on illicit trafficking when they try to develop effective responses to the wildlife trade. But it does seem clear from our discussions that um, prohibition as a standalone approach does not really work. Um, and it's going to take, it will only make the illegal trade stronger and it may exacerbate some of the more security, health and environmental risks. So what kind of measures do you feel would be beneficial to reducing the risks associated with the wildlife trade without, of course, bolstering the role of organized crime groups along the supply chain? I think uh, in the very uh, short term, one thing that uh, governments uh, should be seeking to do is to take uh, an approach that is species-based. As we've seen time and again, um, some species are more uh, vulnerable uh, to uh, zoonotic diseases and, and, and are more uh, prone to uh, host coronaviruses and other pathogens. You know? Bats, for instance, they, they imply a, a level of risk that has become almost unacceptable. So I think preventive policies should seek to regulate the trade in those species in priority. And another measures, a measure that could be implemented in the short term would be to make sure that animals and species that would never cross paths in the wild are not brought together in wildlife facilities. No? This is believed to greatly increase the risk of virus spillover between species. Um, and, and, you know, it's uh, altogether 
not too complicated to to make that change happen. So these are very immediate actions, and um, I think that uh, beyond that, we will not prevent future pandemics unless we take a more comprehensive approach. Yeah, and for sure, building upon these short-term responses, we could be looking at you know some of these long-term holistic responses because I feel like we're kind of faced with two main choices here. We can either improve legislation and the enforcement of the legislations with all the challenges that that includes, or we need governments to plan for transition to decrease communities' dependency on the wildlife trade. So this entails developing alternative livelihoods for people who live off the wildlife trade in both source and destination countries. So, for example, communities who rely on wildlife, on wild meat for their protein intake need a viable and a reliable alternative source of food for a source for food security. And likewise, you know, past experience does show that if you encourage communities to shift from one industry to another, this requires time and this does require a transition phase. So maybe we should be looking at providing those that rely on the wildlife trade as a primary substance with options to diversify their sources of income. I feel that regardless of the choice that you um, you choose as a government, this could go a long way to preserve um, livelihoods, so to decrease any kind of risk on exacerbating poverty and especially decrease the appeal of the illicit um, trade. Yeah, I totally agree. And what I would mention here is that the international wildlife trade and, the, and especially the illegal international wildlife trade is understood to be mainly demand-driven. So because of that, I think an important point is to identify and to address root causes of pervasive demand. And here, especially the focus on demand for wildlife consumed as food seems to be important in the context of global pandemics, since this is a major source of risk compared to other uses and consumption patterns. In many countries, wildlife consumption patterns are deeply rooted and ingrained in the social and cultural fabric. So changing these patterns might require comprehensive interventions, including, and I think these are just um, some suggestions that might work, but improving access to healthcare for all is important. Providing alternative sources of proteins to disadvantaged communities, as, as you just said, um, but also challenging and discouraging the practices and perceptions, which are really at the heart of some of the wildlife consumptions, especially in those for social status. In the end, and this has been proven crucial also in the uh, implementation of the ban of the ivory markets, is the large-scale rollout of demand reduction campaigns, awareness, and educational programs. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it doesn't ex exclude uh, the fact that legal trade is most likely going to endure. I think here there's certainly room for making checks and controls a little bit more robust. For animals entering the trade chain, it's going to be key for um, operators to find ways for these animals to adhere to very high standards and go through more draconian checks, such as, I don't know, quarantine processes. But again, there's no zero risk, and even when strict controls are enforced, we might um, be faced again with uh, with uh, zoonosis, uh, zoonotic diseases. Now, the application of sanitary standards is often hampered by a lack of capacity, by corruption also, uh, by acceptance of informal setups and by the interference of criminal actors. These shortcomings have typically undermined the effectiveness of controls in Southeast Asia, for instance, where uh, markets and breeding facilities are a common site. 
So for me, the bottom line is that wildlife consumption will not be safe unless we make sure that all health and supply chain controls are really enforced. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think even though in today's episode we casted some doubt on the effectiveness of bans, a coherent criminal justice response is still necessary. So countries in the end need to bolster the law enforcement efforts to crack down, especially on organized criminal groups that thrive on the illegal trade in wildlife. This could include a lot of things, for example, streamlining the national legislation, enhancing law enforcement capacities to be operational, especially with respect to what we see is an ever-changing environment. You know, there are new emerging trends such as the emerging sale of wildlife online, or as we discussed before, in the, in the context of COVID-19 measurements, criminal groups might adapt accordingly. So this, this needs all to be factored in. And finally, it might sound cheesy, but a transnational organized crime requires a transnational organized response. And this is a call for better cooperation between countries and especially law enforcement agencies of these different countries to improve early detection of shipments, the prosecution of criminals, post-seizure investigations, and overall to disrupt global supply chains. Um, yeah, for sure. And I feel like the the key getaway from your inputs is that there are just numerous responsible responses available to adequately address the risks posed by the wildlife trade in a sustainable and economically viable way. And, you know, there's just not one way forward. It's going to take um, a lot of tailoring according to local context, but the options are there. And we need to we need to be looking at them and at the same time we need to stop looking at the wildlife trade as some kind of fringe industry we need to recognize its economic weight in the global economy we need to have a greater understand of its economic and social drivers and we need to recognize the role of organized crime in supplying and managing part of the wildlife um supply chain if we hope to develop um some kind of comprehensive responses this is about all that we've had time today but I guess a key getaway from our podcast is that regardless of if you're for or against the wildlife trade, we do um, we do see that the current gaps in knowledge and the lack of consensus means that we are unable to coordinate effective policies and responses. The lack of reliable research continues to undermine sustainable development, depleting natural assets, increasing health risks and exacerbating poverty. Damien, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And thank you very, very much for listening to us. This has been our first episode, so I hope you'll be indulgent with us. This has been Crime Spot. Stay tuned for our next episode.